Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You can call me J-Bay. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and this is a podcast where I interview both sales reps and sales leaders, and I love talking about how to help you land big meetings with prospects. So if that's your goal and you hate not getting responses back to your cold emails or feeling comfortable and confident making cold calls and objection handling, you're definitely in the right place. Today, we have a very special guest. I'm very excited. Jed Mowerly. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Jed, but he's the top SDR at PandaDoc. Let's get to the episode. So one thing that uh, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know I love doing is being able to interview top you know, reps, whether that be SDRs, account executives, or any other type of sales position at a company. And uh, today I'm talking to Jed, who's the top SDR at PandaDoc. We dig into a couple of things, but one thing in primarily is I just go through his process from start to finish. So we dig into a lot about, because I get asked a lot about how, you know, what's the right way to schedule your week. So he's going to give an hour by hour breakdown of exactly how he structures his entire week to get good results. One thing in particular that he does that I think is just so genius that doesn't get talked about is he's going to talk about how you can learn from what's working for the entire company from a client acquisition standpoint and also other reps. So in other words, he's spending time in the CRM looking at like what type of leads come into PandaDoc and he's using those inbound leads to find new personas. And I won't spoil the other thing for you, but he's using Salesforce and their sales development tools to figure out what the top reps are doing so that he can emulate them. So he's not just like reinventing the wheel. He's very, very good at the fundamentals. And what I'm super impressed about with Jed is uh, he's very young. (laughs) If I remember correctly, I think he's 20 years old. So he became an SDR right out of high school, moved to another state across the country, like just super impressive person. And I had a great time talking to him. So I think you'll really dig the interview. Uh, One thing before we get to it, a quick uh, heads up is that if you're looking for more content like this, I put together a one pager on a Google Doc and it's like my best content that you can consume in five to 10 minutes. So today we got a longer episode. If you're looking for quick hitting stuff that you can consume in five to 10 minutes, LinkedIn posts, videos, uh, short podcast episodes, anything like that, make sure to check out blissfulprospecting.com slash Jason, and you can go grab that for free. Let's get to the interview with Jen. So I've been asking this icebreaker lately with a podcast guest, and I'm curious for you, what was your favorite childhood breakfast? Oh, okay. It was uh, probably like bagels with butter. Like that was like what I always had. And then I have like an apple with it, but like buttered bagels in the morning was like, go-to every single time. We got like cinnamon bagels. Yeah, I had that like every day back when I was in like elementary school. Okay, the cinnamon bagels, I feel like are really underrated actually. No, they are because then you put cinnamon on top with the the buttered cinnamon bagel and it's like having, it's almost like a donut, but you feel a little bit healthier. You know what I mean? Dude, I was like, I look back at like what I ate as a kid and it was like, I can't believe I ate that. It was like Pop-Tarts, like chocolate muffins. (laughs) Reese's Cocoa Puffs, you know, like all kinds of stuff with like a ton of sugar in it. But I'm really curious, like how you got into sales. And like one of the things I noticed about you just doing some LinkedIn stocking is that it looks like you did like a lot of like really entrepreneurial 
like stuff? Like when you were a kid, like what were some of the stuff that you were doing when you were like in middle school and high school? So I joined the company I'm at right now, right out of high school, throughout high school. I was actually working at a car wash since I was like 14 and then I was doing like various side hustles. So I would like flip iPhones, buy them off eBay and then just try to sell them for a higher price. I got scammed so many times doing that too in the beginning. People try to sell. Yeah. But you know, that's like some stuff I was doing, flipping iPhones, doing like one-on-one basketball training. And the reason I got into sales was because I wanted to just kind of get my foot in the door to, at a startup and kind of learn about business as opposed to taking the college route and kind of getting a business degree. I just saw that as being a little bit more exciting and something I could get right into. So that's kind of the route I took. And then I uh, joined this program called Praxis, which is kind of like a professional development boot camp. It's like six months. They teach you how to you know, write emails. They teach you how to just kind of develop your brand, LinkedIn, things of that nature. Not necessarily sales focused, but the goal is just to get you to land a job at a startup. That's how I ended up where I'm at now and been loving sales ever since. That's pretty cool. I used to be super self-conscious. Like I dropped out of college. I went to Southern Oregon University my first year to study forensic science. And then I was just like, you yeah, know, that's that's not for me. And that's how I kind of got into sales because I, I uh, this company hired me to run a house painting business. So I went like door to door, you know, was how I learned how to like sell and stuff. But then the next two years, I went to school at Oregon State University to study marketing. And I just had a lot of professors that were talking about marketing and sales who would openly admit they had no actual experience doing it. And I was paying for school out of pocket. So I was like, this is a huge waste of money. But that's gutsy, dude. Like, did you get any resistance from your parents or any other people for just saying, hey, I'm, I'm not going to go to college. I'm just going to get it like a real job and just get to it. Yeah, it's funny because I was homeschooled growing up. So like that whole like doing things different was already kind of ingrained in our family. I don't know if you know a lot of homeschoolers. A lot of people have, a lot of people have some crazy ideas of homeschoolers. And like the stereotype exists, let me tell you that. I'm from Michigan, actually, and it's like one of the biggest homeschooling states in the U.S. That whole idea of like maybe not doing the the norm of just going to college is kind of ingrained in my family. So it was something where like, you know, similar to you, I would have had to pay for school out of pocket. And I was like, I don't even know what I want to do necessarily. So let me just hop right to let me just get into sales, start learning my business that way. And I was like, look, if this doesn't work out, if I'm not liking this, I can always just go to school. But it kind of took off from there. And uh yeah, that was just kind of the mindset. So to be honest, no, I didn't really get a lot of kickback or anything. Were you fearful at all, like giving it a shot or was it not that big of a deal for you? No, man, I was de- I was definitely fearful because like, you know, like my friends are, a lot of my friends are older and they were in school. And it's funny because I, like I said, I'm from Michigan, but I had to move down to Florida. Like I mentioned, I was in that boot camp, that professional development boot camp, and I was interviewing with a bunch of different companies. The company I'm at now, Pandadoc, offered me the job. And then I had to be down there next week, find an apartment and start working. So I had to drive down there. And uh, I was actually 17 at the time, which was crazy, from Michigan to Florida. And um, so I was definitely fearful because I was like, if I screw up, I still have an eight-month uh, lease on my apartment. But, uh, you know, I guess it kind of it kind of worked out, the fact that my back was uh, up against the wall. But yeah. Dude, good for you, man. And it's working out pretty well, which I want to dig into. You've like really crushed it like at Panadoc here in a pretty short amount of time. And one thing I'm always curious about is when you got like into the job, like and started getting into like the day to day where you're actually doing the job, you know, of an SDR. Is there anything from like a mindset standpoint that you looking back, was there anything you had any mental hurdles that you had to like kind of overcome about prospecting or, or being a salesperson or anything that was like almost felt like it was holding you back? Anything like that come up? 
man. I mean, I think the biggest one was just making calls in front of people at first. Like, like I'm gonna be honest, I didn't even know what the job was going to entail when I first moved down there, like cold calling and stuff. And so like, that was the big one. The big hurdle was, was making calls, but we had actually recently hired a new director right when I joined and he was really call focused. Right. Um, and I was actually on a contractor role, so I wasn't even on full time. So I just kind of made it a point to make the most calls because I knew that that's what was going to get me promoted because I knew that's kind of what he cared about. And, you know, I, I knew I didn't really have the technique down, but just kind of like putting those repetitions in in the beginning was kind of what helped me get there. But, yeah, I mean, making calls in front of everybody, that was not fun. It took me a while to get used to that. Yeah. And when you say in front of everyone, is that like just being on the sales floor with all the other reps there and like making calls? And yeah, that's something that doesn't really get talked about a lot, actually. That's interesting now working from home. There's kind of pros and cons, right? I mean, you don't have like the sales floor or the bullpen, I guess some people call it, which is kind of good for motivation, but it's also like you're making calls in front of like other people, which is, could be kind of weird, like getting rejected, especially with a prospect or someone being a jerk to you. Yeah. We had so many good salespeople, but like, like you said, like it's something you don't think about anymore because we're all remote now. But that first three months when I was making calls in front of everybody was just super valuable to me because I could turn to the person next to me and get feedback. And it kind of just... I had, I had to get into that mindset of like, okay, like feedback is good. You know, if I screw up, it's like, whatever. And, and you just got to have thick skin and kind of separate yourself from your professional self. That was the big thing that kind of helped me get over that hurdle. Just take the feedback. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Actually, you said separate yourself from your professional self. Yeah. I wish I was better at it, to be honest. It's something I still, you know, I think a lot of salespeople can relate to it too, is like, you know, if you're doing well, if you're having a good month, then you feel a lot better about yourself. If you're having a bad month, you feel a lot worse about yourself. So that's something I've had to like really separate like as a person, like however well I'm doing in sales or if I get rejected on the phone, it should have nothing to do with how I feel about myself. In fact, it should be a reminder that I'm improving. So that's kind of the mindset that I had to really instill in myself to actually like get better and be motivated to keep doing it. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that you bring up because I encounter this as a business owner too. You know, where it's like sometimes like things aren't going so well or you know, there's a little bit of a low period or I'm not closing as many deals as I should, or maybe it's not going well with a particular client. Yeah. I struggle with that. Do like being able to separate that because it like, you know, in sales or running a business, if you're not, you know, hitting your targets, it means you're not making as much money as like you need to be making, which totally impacts your personal life. What advice, you know, would you have for someone or what advice would you give yourself? Maybe like if you could go back to when you started to like help you kind of separate those two things because it, uh, I've heard people call it sales swagger. It can kind of affect like your self-esteem, even like doing sales and having sales calls with people when you know things aren't going that well. <laughs> There's almost like this like little thing that like people can sense it almost. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's like a roller coaster. It's like why everyone says like the best time to book a meeting is right after you booked a meeting, right? Because you have that same energy. I think the biggest thing that I, I guess I would tell myself is like, don't try to get too high or too low. Like if you're going really good, like, yeah, don't try to like, I don't know, you, you get too high and then, and then things start to go bad and it can kind of mess with you. But yeah, it's really just about separating, which I'm still trying to do. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a continuous process. What you said about, you know, not being too high or low, I think is important too. It's like, don't ride the highs, you know, too high. It's like kind of accept it and like a, remove a little bit of the emotion, the emotional attachment at least to it. But I want to get into some of the more like kind of practical things around. This is something I get asked a lot is, you know, how should I structure my day, structure my week? Like, could you walk us through like, what does your week look like in terms of like what you 
plan for? What does that look like in terms of when do you break off time for prospecting blocks and calling blocks, email versus research and all that other stuff? How do how do you try to tackle your week? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's cool because I've been doing what I've been doing for a while now. So you can take things like, you know, whether you're using like sales law or outreach or whatever, and you can look at the data, like when's the best time to call, things of that nature. So it's like, I have a lot of data and I've picked out a good structure for me now. I'm actually looking at my calendar right here. Basically, the way I, I, I kind of break it down, it's been kind of crazy lately too, because I'm kind of in like a team lead role. So we're onboarding a bunch of people. So there's lots of meetings. So structuring my time is even more important. I could just walk through like kind of A to Z what my day looks like in a week. Great, man. I think that would be really valuable for other people to hear too. For sure. Yeah. And so like for me, the first thing I try to do is obviously just like clear my email, Slack, whatever. That's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. But I'm typically starting with, I try to work like five to 10 new accounts a day. And usually the day before, what I've typically done is um, I take a very like a bottoms up approach. So like the day before, I know the accounts I'm going to work the next day and I'll message AEs at that company because AEs use our product just like account executive sellers use our product. So I'm messaging them just trying to get an understanding like, hey, just curious what you guys are using there for this, for proposals and e-signatures because that's what we sell. And then the next morning, you know, I'm going through LinkedIn, checking those messages and then using any of that data that I have. Lots of times, you know, AE will get back to me and say, hey, oh, we're using this for our proposal contract processes. And I'm sending out emails from usually like 8.30 to 10 o'clock to the decision makers at those companies for those five to 10 accounts I've identified. So the day starts with emails and I start with emails because that's when I need the most brain power to like customize emails as opposed to making calls. And then we have a morning meeting with all the SDRs um, where we're just discussing challenges and, and kind of hashing things out. From 11 to about lunchtime, I'm doing follow-ups. And then right after lunch is my big call block where I'm calling from one to three. Lots of times I'm calling those people that I emailed in the morning and uh, just specifically focusing on like high activity, people that are reviewing my emails, clicking my emails. And then that three to five is usually where I try to schedule in meetings and finish off with like prospecting, list building, and just any admin work that I didn't get to finish earlier. Got it. So you, with your, what time of the day do you get started typically? I started about eight Eastern. Okay. So you, so from eight o'clock to what, nine-ish, it sounds like you're doing, that's when you're doing like the most like customization. Like you're firing off those customized emails, starting those sequences, you do the team meeting, and then you said follow-up. Is that just like following up with like people primarily through email that have responded or what, what are you doing during your follow-up block? Yeah. So just people like, for example, like when I'm going through like a call block, if they said, Hey, maybe this doesn't make sense right now. Follow up with me in two months. I leave reminders. So we use sales law. So I leave reminders. So those are like the leads I'm really trying to prioritize and I'm giving them a call back. I usually have like 10 to 15 of those to go through in a day. So you have time blocked off every day to go through like people that you need to follow up with. Can you share a little bit more about like in that follow-up block, like what kinds of like groups of people might be in that block? It sounds like people that said call back later. Is there anything else that you're looking at in your pipeline to follow up with during that time? Yeah, call back later. Maybe it was like a referral. Maybe I had a conversation with somebody and they're like, yeah, it wouldn't be me, but shoot an email and I'll try to see who I can get in touch with. So that kind of thing. Or what it's like, kind of like deep thinking work almost. Like I know that, that this context giving me good indication that maybe I can get in touch with somebody at this account. So like referrals, things like that, um, that I'm usually following up with. Um, or even no-shows. Like if I had a no-show, um, that's another thing that might fall under that follow-up block. Yeah. And then are you doing 
like with the meetings, are those like qualification calls? Or are you guys doing your own discovery calls? What kind of calls are you doing? Yeah. So I do like a, a little bit of discovery up front and then we typically book it. We have like a one-to-one SDR to AE pairing. So then I'll book you with my AE. So typically if it's over email, I might give them a call just to ask a few upfront questions before that demo, just to make sure it's, I, I kind of front load it with, you know, just want to ask you a few questions to make sure we get the most of our time in that call. So a little bit of qualification, but most of the discovery happens on the demo. Got it. Okay. So I want to dig into like just why you do it this way. Cause I think that part's really important. You already talked about why you do the stuff in the morning. Cause like, it sounds like the most draining part is like writing those custom emails, like thinking about like how it applies to this person, that company. Why do you do your call blocks from 1 to 3 p.m., like your heavy cold calling blocks? For a while, I was doing it in the morning. And um, there's been a lot of data that shows like, I think like 8 to 10 is like the prime time to call like sales leaders or whatever, or really just anybody that's a decision maker. And I was doing that, but then I would like send out those custom emails later in the day. And like, I just wouldn't have as much energy. Um, so it's kind of just thinking about like yourself, like when does it make the most sense for you to be the most productive, right? When I get back from lunch, I'm like fully awake. I have those emails I sent in the morning that I can follow up on and call and say, Hey, just call them about that email I sent over this morning. I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at that. Um, but it's really just because I feel the most energized and I feel like tone is the most important thing on a cold call as opposed to like what you're saying. And if I have my morning you know, not super energized tone as opposed to just got back from lunch, ready to hit the ground running. That's kind of why I chose that one to three time period for my call block. You're doing something that I think is really underrated, actually. You're creating your schedule and it's like, if it was like a Venn diagram, it kind of would be a mix of like, hey, what's most effective in terms of what the data says, but also what's most effective for me and just my own like working style and my energy level like when I feel the best. That's really underrated because you're totally right. If you made all the block of calls eight to 10 in the morning, and that was when pickup times were the highest, but you have the least amount of like energy or willpower. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not a morning person. You can't, yeah. you can't just change that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. So yeah, it's a good point. You listen to the data, but also you can't necessarily change. And then again, what's the why behind doing meetings later in the afternoon? Why do you, why do you decide to do those in the afternoon? Kind of because it gives me a deadline. Like, look, if I know I have meetings at like, for example, this meeting's at three o'clock that you and I are having it. Like, okay, I know I had till three o'clock to get all my stuff done. Whereas if my meetings are like in the morning, that's when my work starts to bleed in past five o'clock and it starts to get into like my personal day, my personal time outside of work. Um, So I try to make those meetings towards the end of the day. So it's kind of like the last thing I'm doing and I'm ensuring that I, I have a deadline to get all the actual work done. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's another piece too that I haven't heard very many people talk about. You do that to create like actual, like real urgency in your schedule where I like need to get this stuff done. And then are you fitting all of your work into like an eight to five work day? Um, I wish I could say so. I, for the most part, I am, but sometimes like, you know, sometimes it goes a little bit over five. Sometimes it's like Sunday evening, I'm just doing some admin work just to get those like sequences ready to go. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, yeah. Dude, good for you, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, good for you. I'm super big on this just from a mental health standpoint. Like, I almost feel like some people judge me when I'm like, yeah, I, I don't really want to work more than 40, 45 hours a week. I just, I just don't. Like, I could, you know, but then it totally takes a toll on my personal life. Like, after work, then I'm like a complete zombie with my wife. You know, it's like, I'm like thinking about other stuff or I just want to zone out or whatever. It's not good for my personal life, you know? 
Is there anything else around like your schedule? Does it kind of look like that Monday through Friday typically? Or is there any types of stuff you try to front load in the week or wait until the end of the week to do? Typically like Fridays is when I'm trying to do a lot of admin work or a lot of, you know, just other meetings that aren't necessarily leading to like actual pipeline. So typically later in the week, again, that's kind of that urgency thing, right? Like make sure I get the big stuff done in the week, book most of those meetings early on. Um, and then if I have to have other things, it'll be later towards the end of the week. And now like as of recently, we're onboarding a bunch of new SDRs. So I have lots of one-on-ones with them, lots of training meetings and stuff. So that's stuff that I just have to incorporate throughout the day. Gotcha. And just so everyone has some context too, are you like, what kind of businesses are you prospecting to in terms of like size and things like that? Personally, for me, it's typically in like the 200 employee to like 1000 employee range, mid-market. It's kind of free range though, for the most part, usually software companies, but you know, education, even like government nonprofits, things of that nature, but typically just like the typical selling to other Panda docs, basically SaaS software companies. Yeah. I think that perspective is important because you said five to 10 new accounts, which might not sound like much to someone selling SMB and which might sound like a ton if you're selling, you know, enterprise. So I think that's, that's important. So if we kind of like look at the morning blocks around like you're sending out the emails and stuff like that and doing the research, what does the account planning process look like for you? How many people do you reach out to and how do you decide who to reach out to and what would be important to them? And like, what, how does that look? I have a lot of different like buckets I'll pull from. I pay really close attention to like inbound leads that are coming in, for example. So like we do outbound, but I'll, I'll still pay attention to the inbound leads that are coming in. And so like a trend I was noticing was a lot of like, directors of sales ops, for example, were coming inbound and they're like new to their company, like first six months. So like, that's a a good example. Like if I'm looking at five to 10 accounts that I have that are in my territory, I'm trying to mainly prospect after like sales ops, people, VPs of sales, like those are kind of like the main personas I target. And then I'm using things like sales navigator to identify people that are new in their role. Cause I know those are going to be contacts I'm going to want to prioritize. So typically like three to the most five contacts per account at a time. And usually in that like sales or sales ops leadership. That's a, I think a really interesting hack looking at the inbound leads to see like what kind of job titles are most like interested in talking to you guys. And then you make sure to throw those into the mix when you're doing outbound. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how many patterns I've found just from looking at that or even looking at old leads, like where I had uh, booked meetings in the past, like at the end of each month, I try to look at all the opportunities I booked and just trying to identify patterns that's going to help me be more efficient in the next month. And like with inbound leads, for example, too, sometimes it'll be like, wow, this is a vertical that I wasn't expecting to come inbound. You know what I mean? Let me go find some similar accounts to that one. You're kind of like a little bit of a mad scientist, dude, with this. I I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Personally, this is my weakness. And I've always been more of like the soft skills, you know, kind of thing. And I'm very like productive and can like hit the numbers. But in terms of like looking at the data, it sounds like you have a really good mix of that. Is there any other, so you're finding new personas, like interesting verticals. Is there any other stuff that you find like when you're going back and looking through patterns? That's a good question. Those are like the main ones for sure. I mean, just tracking like all the opportunity, like even people on the app on team, look at everybody else who's booking opportunities and pull up a report once a week. And then just try to break it down. Like I'll take three of my colleagues, three meetings they booked, and then go into Salesforce and just look at, okay, this is every single email they sent, every single cold call they made, every single sequence they used. Like what can I steal and use for myself to be more productive next week? So like that's the kind of things I'm looking for. 
I think just making it a habit to like really actually be introspective on the work that you're doing because it's easy to just make 10 more calls, but sometimes that time spent can be used on, you know, looking at patterns like that to be more efficient as opposed to just making that 10 more calls, which might, you know, rub some people the wrong way, but I don't know. That's just the way I think about it. Well, it's kind of like that old saying, uh, was it George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or one of those older presidents? <laughs> it's not alive anymore. <laughs> Something around like, hey, you give me an hour to, you know, cut down a tree. I'll spend or four hours. I'll spend you know, three hours sharpening the ax or whatever. You know, it's kind of like really purposeful. How many, like if you just had to kind of guesstimate, how much time do you spend per week kind of doing this type of thing where you're thinking about like, how am I? doing this and am I being purposeful and am I doing this like as smart as I could possibly do it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably like an hour a day to be honest. So does that come down to like five hours a week? could be more or less, but back to like my time blocking thing, that's usually towards the end of the day. If I hear, I see ideas on LinkedIn or if I see some things that might be helpful, I'll jot down notes. And at the end of the day, I go through my notes, kind of organize them and then uh, look at the reports and things of that nature to find those patterns. Dude, this is pretty badass, man. I haven't had anyone share this with me, like the the pattern recognition and like looking at what other people are saying. And I heard you talk about that with uh, Colin and Sarah on the predictable revenue deal last week or the week before, whenever it was. This like you're taking screenshots of people's emails. You're like you're looking at what what people responded to, like who they're setting meetings with. It's uh, it's pretty cool, man. So from a research standpoint, do you have like a framework or a process you follow? to find the thing that you're going to personalize the email with or the way that you're going to add relevance? Totally. The biggest thing is like what tools are using. So like everybody uses an e-signature software if you're selling the SaaS companies. And it's lots of times I want to identify what they're using, which is typically through like Zoom Info or whatever. Or like I said, messaging AEs, especially like I create content and stuff, right? People will, will like my content or engage with me. So I'm connected with a lot of AEs. I'll just reach out to them and say, hey man, like just curious what you guys are using there. And that's kind of the research that I'm doing that I'm then taking to somebody else, not mentioning their name, but just saying, hey, I heard you guys are using X. So it's typically just trying to identify the tools they're using. And then knowing those tools in our competitors, I can kind of predict the potential weak points or pain points they might have with that competitor, right? Everybody knows how what they have, how they're better than their competitor or whatever. So I'm trying to, to basically point out a potential pain point they might have because I know they have this competitor. And that's typically what the personalization looks like. I'm not somebody that's going to get super like personal, like on a persona level with it, but I just want to know like what they're using organizationally. I'll give you another example of somebody using like sales ops or whatever. I'm trying to look at their job descriptions to see like what type of tools have they implemented at other companies and then using that to personalize. So it's very much like based on their process that I'm personalizing on. Any bits of like, this isn't relevant to my message, but it's something to show that I'm not a robot or whatever. I typically put as like a PS or a footnote at the end of the email, as opposed to like leading off with it. Okay, that's a, I mean, there's so many things I want to dig into you with there. Like the cold emails that I tend to fire off are ones, it sounds like you also might be doing a little bit of this where it's like people you're connected with on LinkedIn engaging with your content, right? And if I see something, I'm like, oh, cool, I'm just going to fire off an email. So I don't spend a lot of time on it, but I almost always save the personalization for the PS. Oh, hey, that you're also in Texas, or um, <laughs> I just got a, a a meeting recently. Like directors of sales enablement are also a persona for me because a lot of times they're looking for content right for their team. So I'll just put in the PS. Hey, also saw that one of your specialties is bringing organization to chaos. 
So I thought you might find this framework helpful, right? When I'm sharing like a piece of content. It's like that little bit right there, organization to chaos, is that's just what I throw in the subject line and just fire it off. And it gets like a really quick response because it's like the message is not, dude, it's not highly tailored to them or anything, but it's really relevant to like what they would care about. And there's this kind of thing that this like whole personalization versus relevance. I mean, you see the debates on LinkedIn, right? I don't know. I think it's kind of like all of the same stuff. It's just like, how do you make this message relevant for the person? And I think that you can do, especially if you bucket stuff well, you can really like do a lot of this at scale and just add little tiny stuff to it if you're really specific about what people like them would care about. Because you said personalized to the process. It's like a really interesting way of looking at it. Do you have like an example, like what would an email, like what's an example of what an email might sound like that has like some of this in it? Yeah. So when I say personalize the process, I have a lot of safe templates based on what they're using. So like everybody knows a DocuSign, right? So maybe they're using DocuSign and Salesforce. I have a template for that for a sales ops person that has DocuSign and Salesforce. So it's maybe like the, the subject line might be like spoke with one of your reps. You know what I mean? It's like the subject line. And then it might be like, hey, I heard you guys are using Salesforce or using DocuSign on the Salesforce for your you know contracts right now. I'm not sure if this is top of mind, but like insert relevant customer is I don't want to I don't want to come across in a negative way towards DocuSign, but you know I have like a value prop that's basically saying a, a pain point. You know, is this relevant kind of thing? And then would you be open to connecting further? And another thing I've been adding for like my call to actions is would you be open to connecting further, or would X be a better person to get in touch with? And X is, you know, somebody I've researched that I honestly think might just be a better contact because with some of those like mid-market accounts, you might not actually know, right? Who's the actual best person to get in contact with? And I feel like it just creates less friction and they're like, oh yeah, actually reach out to them as opposed to them just not ignoring your email. They're recognizing that you put in the work to find maybe somebody else better to get in contact with. How much of this do you think is that right there? Just showing the other person that you did your homework. Oh, I think it's a big one, yeah. Because I'll have people re- replying to your emails. If you send a personalized email like that to a sales leader, they'll say thanks for doing research, like all the time. I'm sure you've seen it. You know what I mean? Like, so I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, and then by putting the person's name in there, it's like it's uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, you said something around just showing that you're not a robot. This little stuff doesn't take that. You, you already have the list of people that you're going to reach out to the account. You know, little stuff like that doesn't really take that long to throw in. And then using the PS, I think, is brilliant. And yeah, we're definitely not shooting on DocuSign. Like, I get like what you're doing there. I so didn't no, want it. Yeah. <laughs> good on you for saying that, though. So with the research, it sounds like a lot of it is you're getting really good context into the situation that this company is in and how that might be affecting this person's process and their job. And you have these like pre-made templates that yeah, they're templates, but they're really, really catered for. You said you have a template for ops people at a company that's using Salesforce and DocuSign. That's a very, very specific situation that's going to feel tailored for that person without you having to rewrite it every time. Yeah, no, exactly. A big part is referencing a very relevant customer, right? So like, I think it's important wherever you work to know the customers you have. So when you're reaching out, you can you can just go on G2 Crowd. If you sell in software companies, G2 Crowd, search the company you're trying to prospect, who are their alternatives and competitors. Look through that list of like 50 and see if one of them is your customer. And then boom, copy and paste in the email. That's kind of what I'm doing. But um, yeah, I think it's a, a big part of it. Do you leverage case studies at all? I do. I don't try to say, hey, X uh, saved 27% time and increased. Like, that's not typically what I'm doing. It's a little bit more like, 
hey, we work with X. I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't necessarily like link to the case study or put a lot of percentages in or stats. I know I've seen the data show, you know, it's good and bad. So I really don't know. But personally, I don't put percentages in. I know there's a big gong study about that. And it was a big thing on like LinkedIn. But it's so subjective, those studies, man. <laughs> yeah. I love gongs. This is no knock on them. It's uh, there isn't really much about who the data was tested on, what salespeople are using, who they were prospecting to, what they sell who they're selling to, what size of companies, what's the average deal. I mean, there's just so much to take in consideration. Not to mention that every individual salesperson has a unique personality and like style and, and uh, you know, all that stuff. But so it sounds like the customer story and having something relevant, that's important. You're not necessarily talking about how you save them a bunch of money or like doing any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, because I mean, if you know your persona as well, right? You know a sales apps person cares about this and then you could say, hey, look, this company that they obviously know is using us, you know, why would they not want to just take a look and just kind of see what else is out there? You just got to make sure you hit on that pain. So you got to identify the pains that each persona would have knowing the competitors that they have in place or the processes they have in place. Love it. Let's talk about cold calling. What's your approach to like those cold call blocks? It looks like there's, they're a couple hours long. How do you approach like being productive in that two hour block? Like how do you set up the call block and like, what is the amount of ferocity dialing? <laughs> like what, what does all of that stuff look like? Yeah. I need to get better at it too, but I usually just try to like mute Slack and then I'll put like a, a note saying dialing. So if anybody wants to hit me up, they know what's going on. <laughs> you think about like your boss would probably even have a hard time bugging you in your middle of like a dialing session. <laughs> right. <laughs> now I have a Jabra emoji. Actually I used AirPods now. I used to have Jabra's. I usually put the Jabra emoji as like my status on Slack. That's what I used to do. So yeah, it's like, obviously it's like tuning things out. I try to go 10 at a time, right? So I have, I have them in a list. The big thing I try to do is I have emails set up, like follow-up emails on my personalized emails that are maybe just literally like thoughts. So as soon as I make that call and leave a voicemail, once that triggers, like sales loft will automatically send out that automated email. So that's a big thing I try to do is every time I'm making a call, there's an email sending out or I'm like connecting or just viewing their LinkedIn profile just to kind of have that two or three touches at once. So I just like, you know, grouping your emails and calls together is a huge thing that's helped me get those replies. But yeah, I just go 10 at a time, right? So I'll make 10 calls, take a quick break, maybe check Slack, go on LinkedIn, whatever. And then 10 calls again, 10 calls again. We can dive into the script or wherever else you want to go with that. But that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, I love that. Is it kind of like a Pomodoro yeah. kind of method where you're calling, giving yourself a little bit of a mental break and then hitting it really hard, 10 calls, that sort of stuff? Yeah, let's dig into like the call. How do you approach, you said tone was really important. You know, How do you think about tonality? How do you open your calls? Like what's the kind of maybe the structure, all of that good stuff? Yeah, so I don't, I don't really have like a canned script that I use for everybody. When I was doing more SMB, I feel like that worked a little bit better. But with the, uh, like the mid-market accounts that I'm working, I'm typically trying to let them know that like, hey, there's a reason why I'm reaching out to you. I'm not just cold calling you because you're on my list as soon as possible. So I typically open up with like, you know, hey, Jason, this is Jed with PandaDoc, just following up on that email I sent over. I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at that. And that's kind of what it sounds like. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I actually did see your email. And then boom, it's kind of a conversation from there. If they say no, then I'm trying to say, yeah, no worries. I spoke with whoever there. Sounds like you guys are using, you know, these processes would you be the person to talk to about that? So that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm trying to let them know right away that I've spoken with somebody. Even if it was somebody that literally just hung up on me, I'll just say, yeah, I spoke with this person. 
I know they're not the right person to talk to. Would you be a better person? And just the fact that I'm like saying the names of people in their company or saying the names of processes they actually use, they're staying on the phone with me and at least open to having a conversation, give me that referral or book in the meeting. So kind of in a nutshell, that's what it looks like. Yeah, I like that piece. There's so many different styles of cold calling, man. It's kind of funny. Your approach, it sounds like, is I want to bring something relevant to the table like immediately. I'm not going to do a permission-based opener. I'm not going to do this other stuff. Like, hey, Jed, Jason, Blissful Prospecting, I was talking to, I found this, saw that, I sent you an email. Like, you're adding like immediate context. So if the person says, yeah, I got the email, what are, like, what do they say after that? Like, what, what are the typical things that you hear? Yeah, sometimes they say, I saw the email and then they kind of tell me like why they didn't respond. Sometimes they'll even just give me a referral or whatever. Sometimes they say, yeah, I saw the email and that's it. <laughs> and then I was like, and then usually I'll either take it as an opportunity to be like, kind of like recap the email and then just say, so would you be the person to talk to about that? Or just like, you know, what were your thoughts kind of thing? But I typically use that as like an invitation to kind of pitch and then go into that. Yeah, okay. So you saw the email. Again, you probably saw that I talked to X or whatever. It was assuming you'd be the person to talk to about each signature processes there and then kind of go from there. So I just use it as like a warm intro to like basically pitch. Yeah. And if the person says, okay, yeah, I'm the person to talk to you, where does the call go from there? So typically I'll, I'll come at them with like a pain that I know based on their processes they might have and just ask if it's relevant. Or I'll just say like, oh, cool. How is that working right now? I, I try to put it on them, like ask them questions, like what does the process look like right now? Or I'll say, you know, typically people I talk to, you know, who are using these processes. Sometimes they experience this. I don't know if that's relevant to you guys at all. And then just try to get them to open up. As soon as I have any type of pain or any indication of pain, that's when I go for the close. And then I do more discovery after I have the meeting kind of thing. So I just try to go for that close right at the height of impulse as soon as I identify there might be a pain or an area that we can help. And are people pretty forthcoming with like sharing if they have a pain point or not? If I bring it to them, right? Like if I say, you know, here's a pain that other people are having, um, or if I let them know, like, hey, I spoke with one of your AEs, this is what you guys are using. Do you think this process could be a little more streamlined? Or do you think this process could be better? Usually if I show them that I've done the research and I come off with like the right tone, that they're pretty forthcoming. If I just come up to them with no research, right? Hey, this is Jay with Panadoc. What are you guys using right now for e-signatures? Like nothing else, then they're not very receptive because I've done that before. Yeah, it's it's kind of like law of reciprocity, right? It's like you're showing that you're putting some work in there and they're willing to put in a little bit of work, you know, as well. And then how do you, like when you close and set the meeting, is there anything that you do in particular to like get them on the calendar, get them to confirm, you know, anything like that? To Because I hear a lot of people are like, oh yeah, you know, only a third of the meetings that I set for my cold calls like actually like show up, which feels like a huge waste of time if, like it's only like a third, you know, like what do you do to set up the meeting, confirm it, like get the person to show up, that sort of thing? Yeah. I feel like with cold calls too, like you can generally tell if they're going to show up for the meeting. You know what I mean? Like they're like, yes, I mean, invite. and it's like, okay. So then you got to like strip line, right? You have to be like, I guess what I'm trying to, trying to get at is like, I typically know if they're going to show up for the meeting based on like the pain I identified, right? The way I go for the meeting, we call it the option close. My manager's really big on this. Like, you know, once you've identified the pain, it's like, hey, normally what we do is just schedule a quick demo to see how we might be able to help. I don't know if later today would work for that, or do you think tomorrow would be better? Or I don't know if, you know, would this Friday, do you think work for you? Or maybe next week would be better. So it's not really like yes or no, it's like this time or that time. So like from a tactical standpoint, that's what I'm saying. But then I'm trying to get them to pick the time as opposed to me saying, hey, how does Tuesday at two o'clock work? 
And then, you know, there's a whole process of things like anybody else, would anybody feel left out if they weren't on that meeting? Things like any reason why that wouldn't work, right? Any reason why two o'clock on Wednesday wouldn't work once you've confirmed the time. And by asking those questions, you can kind of get a sense for, okay, are they brushing me off or do we have a real meeting here? And then, uh, you know, if they, if I really feel like they're brushing me off, I'd be like, hey, I'll give you a call an hour before I'm meeting just to confirm we're still on if that's all right. So make sure you have a list. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is these are the things I'm going to ask once I've booked a meeting just to confirm that uh, we, you know, they're going to show up for the demo. Yeah. Love it, man. Qualification, I wanted to pick your brain about a little bit. So when you do the qualification call, like what's the structure of that? How long do you typically book them for? And how do you how do you do them? What's your kind of approach? And then I'll probably have a couple more questions. Yeah, so it's pretty basic. It's pretty, it's nothing crazy because it's not like our product is like super complex. And a lot of people are, most of like when I'm targeting an account and a person, like I know they're pretty qualified for the demo. We do like paint notes, right? So like pain authority or like attendees on the demo, internal workflow, need and timeline, right? It's so like, those are the things we're trying to fill out when I pass it off to an AE. If I booked it off an email, I might try to get them on the phone first for a quick like discovery call just to kind of learn more about what they're currently doing. If I catch them on the phone, I'll just try to ask those questions and then pass them off to the AE just so we have a good understanding. The big thing though, like with outbound is just making sure there's a pain because there's going to be no leverage on the demo if you don't actually have a real pain. So I have to have something specific that I can point to and give to my AE. Like, hey, they are struggling with cost on their with their competitor or they're struggling with getting these proposals out fast enough. That's the pain we need to solve for. And if I have that pain, then I'm pretty much good to go as long as I did my targeting well on the accounts. Yeah. How long does it take typically to qualify and do the qualification call? Honestly, it's like five minutes. It's depends on how to talk to the person is, especially with the people I'm reaching out to, they don't have a ton of time. So it's I'm not trying to waste their time. I try to give them the best customer experience. Lots of times they want to just get right to a demo kind of thing. So I'm not trying to take up a ton of their time. So how do you dig for the pain? What do you what do you ask them to get them talking about that? Yeah, I mean, it's really just uh, I'm just asking questions that are, are really short. Like, oh, like I guess what I'm trying to get is like go a level a level deeper, right? Like, oh, what are you using right now? Okay, we're using this right now. How is that working for you? And it's very like quick, like them focused questions sort of things. I guess a lot of my strategy is just trying to get it to be focused on them and not me really trying to tell them a bunch or pitch a bunch. So. If they're saying like, look, we want to get something implemented within the next month. It's like, oh, well, what happens if you don't get it implemented by the end of the month? Things like that, where you take it a step further, not just accepting that first thing that I told you. If that makes sense. Hopefully. No, that makes sense. And what do you call the phone call? Like from the prospect's point of view? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I try to just be straight up because everybody, if you're selling like a VP of sales, right? Like they know it's just like their SDRs book demos too. So like, I don't really try to, you know, like if it's just like a discovery call, I'll just do like call with Chad Panadoc, you know what I mean? Or it'll just be like demo. And then a cool thing I've been doing too is once they've confirmed the meeting or once they told me that they're going to be on, I'll do confirmed in parentheses on the invite just to kind of add that extra layer. But yeah, man, I know some people are against calling it a demo. I I just call it a demo. I, I don't try to play any games or anything. <laughs> Yeah, I was just more curious about the qualification call. Like that, if that's like on the calendar, you know, qualification call with, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because like I said, if it's just up an email, so I'd be like, okay, let's schedule a quick call, and then I'll usually just pass it to my. The reason why I ask is there's a lot of people that are like 
kind of oblivious, I think, to that a little bit. It's like, hey, the prospect might understand it's a qualification call, but if the whole thing is centered around like, oh, qualification call, and you call them, hey, I want to see if you're qualified to do a demo with us, you know, it's like, it's kind of, it's just kind of weird when you go about that and you don't think about like what's in it for them. So these are stuff that people ask me about that they're really curious about and everyone kind of does it a little bit differently. Yeah, I just try to keep it brief. I think like what you said, like you want to make it about them, not just about, oh, are you qualified to see our product? So I just try to think like, if I was in their shoes, would I want to jump through all these hoops just to see a demo? And so I try to not make them jump through extra hoops. If I know I have a pain, then I'm usually going to, my A and I have a good relationship to where it's like, I don't have to, if I give them something that maybe he's lacking notes, as long as I have that pain, that's kind of like what's important just to get them a good customer experience as far as seeing the demo. Love it, man. Dude, this is good. I learned a ton from this. I think people are really going to dig it. I got a couple more questions for you. Is there any common advice you see out there around prospecting or how to be a good SDR that you don't follow? That's a good question. Damn, I haven't heard that one. I guess nothing comes specifically to mind. We already touched on it, the personalization versus relevance thing. I think it's a lot of just misunderstanding on what personalization is and what relevance is. But I mean, I don't follow the personalization just for personalization. I think if you just know your persona as well and you know the pains they might have, it can be a little bit more templated. It can be a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more templated as opposed to just the whole personalization thing. So I, I guess that's the one big thing about STRs I don't necessarily follow. Yeah, love it, man. Well, where do you want people to go to connect with you? And I know you're posting tons of content, good stuff on like LinkedIn, but where can people go to find out more about you and PandaDoc? Yeah, uh, just check me out on, on LinkedIn, Jed Marley. There's not a lot of Jeds, so you'll be able to find me. And uh, I run a newsletter as well, Practical Prospecting, where I just share like expo prospecting tips and screenshots of the emails I'm sending, kind of like take you behind the scenes on some of the stuff I'm doing. So feel free to subscribe there and just shoot me a message on LinkedIn. And is the uh, Practical Prospecting, is that a LinkedIn newsletter? It's a Substack, So it'll just be like every other week through email. Cool. And they can find that on your LinkedIn profile as well? Yep. Everything's on the LinkedIn profile, either in the featured section or in my bio. The biggest thing that I took away from this is I love how he is very purposeful about learning from other people and how he looks at you know the meetings that have been landed in Salesforce and he backtracks and looks at like the emails that people sent and all that stuff is just genius. So what I would take away if you're a rep or if you're a sales leader is be thinking about like how can you replicate your best reps, like what they're doing. Not replicate them, like literally like make them robots and like have them copy each other. Just learn from each other. Like, are you giving your reps a, a space to see what other reps are doing that's working well? And if not, how could you do that? And as a rep, how could you be proactive in looking at what other people are doing and finding success with and where your company is finding success so that you can be smarter with how you prospect? So that's all I got for you today. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure to like, subscribe, all that good stuff if you like the podcast so that you can continue getting the episodes. And we'll talk to you soon.